0: Hey, good morning guys. I hope you're doing great. Today on this uh, beautiful Sunday, we are uh, jumping into this new series uh, a couple weeks ago and um, it's called Walk by Faith and it's the kind of topic (laughs) that you just don't want to rush through. So I don't want to rush through this, these scriptures, this passage. Or uh, this topic in any way, because if we don't like digest it, internalize it, and then do what James is going to tell us today, then we've, we've gonna, we're going to we're going to miss the boat. We're going to miss the whole point. If all we do is know stuff, that's not enough. We're going to see that today. That that following Jesus is not about knowing stuff. You we need to know stuff. But if we don't live it out, if we don't put it into practice, it's useless, it's pointless, and it will literally get us nowhere, uh, nowhere in the kingdom of God, nowhere in our spiritual walk with Christ, nowhere. And so we're going to move through this topic kind of slowly, digging a little bit like we've done the last two weeks. And this is another awesome passage of scripture that we're going to dig into. But walking by faith, what, what, does that, what does that even look like? Like in a real world that you and I live, wherever it is you live, you go to work, you rub shoulders with people at the grocery store, you see people, you interact with the world, make decisions about our money, our, our purchases, What does it even mean? What does it even look like to walk on this planet by faith in, in God and in Jesus who are not of this world, who are not of this planet? How do we how do we like mesh these two things? How do we walk by faith, like Paul said last week, and not by sight? How do we do that? How do we put that into practice? Today, we're in the, the book of James. And uh, James is going to give us some good stuff. The book of James is a powerful book. It's so intense. But, but before we kind of get into that, there, there's a couple people in the Bible, in the New Testament, particularly named James. There's four different guys named James. The first one is uh, an apostle, he is the apostle of uh, James and John, the brothers. Right, One of the first disciples that followed Jesus. But what we find out about that apostle, James, is in Acts chapter 12, he's put to death. And so he's the first martyr, he's the first apostle that is, he's not the first martyr, martyr Stephen is, but he's the first apostle that we learn about that was executed. The gospel books and the epistles were written later than Acts 12. And so we know that that James, the Apostle James, did not write this letter. There's two other Jameses in the New Testament, but we don't have a lot of information about them. They're kind of obscure and probably not responsible for writing the letter of James. And then there's one other James, it's the fourth James, and this is the brother of Jesus. He is Jesus's brother. And so as the boys got older, James was a younger brother of Jesus. Remember, Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus. And so all the other siblings came after Jesus. He's the oldest. And so this is the brother of Jesus, James. He is kind of around the situation. He's around Jesus. He hears about all the things that were going on and what was happening at the time. And in Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 55, the people the people are amazed at Jesus' teachings because they they saw Jesus as just one of them, like another brother, cousin, relative, and they're amazed at his teachings. And the scripture says this in Matthew 13: Isn't his mother, this is what they say, the people say this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And so the people identify that. James and Joseph, Simon, and Judas are the brothers of Jesus. And so Jesus has this group of brothers, right? Cool, how cool is that? Group of brothers. I mean, who doesn't want to live with a group of brothers, right? Everything is just wonderful and terrific, right? And so this James, the brother of Jesus, is... In the ministry of Jesus, because Jesus was so close to him, and he was his brother, kind of like Joseph and his brothers, they, there was a lot of skepticism about who Jesus was and what he was saying, who he's claiming to be. They thought, he's our brother. How, how could he be the Messiah? And it was difficult for them to kind of grab on to the fact that he was. And... Uh, Later on though after Jesus dies and rises from the dead the resurrection James James steps up in his belief in who Jesus is he really he really grabs on to the ministry and the mission of Jesus and so much to the point that James not only wrote this letter but James he becomes a pillar in the um a pillar leader in the church in Jerusalem, the, the, the first church in Jerusalem. He becomes one of the main leaders. You look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, you'll see that. So James, the brother of Jesus, begins his letter like this. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. There's a couple things here I want to point out that are just really interesting to know. And that is this. James, James, the younger brother of Jesus, considers himself to be a servant of Jesus and of God's. The word means a slave or a bond servant. Somebody who has has become a, a, a true servant of someone else. Willing to do whatever they want. Willing to take orders, willing to say how high when they say jump. A slave, a servant. Like bound to Jesus, his brother, in devotion and in love. He is bound to a bond servant. Like a close, closer than a friend kind of servant. But understanding that he is under Jesus. Notice he doesn't say a servant of God and of my brother Jesus. He says, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. James has figured out who this Jesus is, even though he's his blood brother. He has come to grips with the fact that Jesus is not just his brother. Jesus is the Lord, and he says, who is the Christ. Look, the Lord Jesus uh, who is the Messiah. He is Lord and Savior. And he is, James is saying, he is my Lord and my Savior, and I am a servant of his. And he also says, look, servant, and he says, to the 12 tribes. So James's letter is to the 12 tribes. Well, who are the 12 tribes? That's, that's the, the, the children of, of Jacob, right? These are the 12 sons who inherited the land. Slim J, Nasby The 12 tribes. There's 13 letters here, but the Levites, remember, they didn't get a disbursement of land. They became the priests. But there are the 12 sons of Jacob, who are the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are the Jewish nation. They are representative of the Jewish nation on a whole. This is, this is, remember, after Jesus has died and rose from the the dead, and now this is the Christian church. And James is writing his letter to Jews that have become Christians, Jews who have given their life over to Jesus. They are Jews for Jesus. We know there's a lot of other Jews who did not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They did not accept Jesus as the Messiah because their world would have had to change. They would have had to change some of the things they were doing and how they were thinking and they would have had to come to grips with the fact that the Messiah had come and they were now to give their allegiance to him and they weren't willing to do that. And so the 12 tribes are the Jews who are now believers. And so James, as he begins this letter, he ties these two thoughts together, the Lord Jesus and the 12 tribes. And so these are... Jews who have fallen in love and are followers of Jesus. So it's clear who he's writing to. And in his letter, uh, James is going to touch on all kinds of like Christian issues. Like for a Jewish minded person, these are things that that you need to know if you're going to live the Christian life. And for every believer and every follower out there, James lays out for us things that we need to be thinking about and doing as we live our lives for Jesus. As we follow Jesus, these are things that we need to really put into practice. Chapter 1, James talks about hard times. They're going to come. And James says, count it all joy when they come. Why? Because God is going to do something in your life. If you're going to walk by faith, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience hard times just like everyone else on the planet. When you go through those times, you go through those times holding on to Jesus and you count it all joy because you know that your God is working all things for your good. You're not just out there on your own. You are out there with the Lord. And so you're going to be fine. Count it all joy, he says. He talks about believers in a humble circumstance, maybe who have nothing, or poor, dirt poor, or, or oppressed by the government. Believers in a humble circumstance, James is going to say, are really in high positions. When you are humble in the kingdom of God, you are at your highest point in God's eyes. That That's bizarre, isn't it? Like we, we live in a world that strives for exaltation. Got to get what I deserve, right? We're going to get some of mine. I deserve to be heard. I deserve to be counted. I, get, I deserve this. We deserve that, right? That's Everyone's trying to lift themselves up. And James is going to say to uh, the, the believers, the Jewish believers, he's going to say, look, you want to get high, go low. Go low. Humble yourself and you will be high in the eyes of God. Powerful stuff in James chapter 1. He says temptation in James chapter 1. Temptation is going to come from Satan, but testing is going to come from God. Know the difference between those two things. He's going to say, just don't listen to the word only. Do what it says. That's the theme of James's book. It's about doing the word, not just knowing the word. We're going to dig into that here in a little bit. James in chapter 1 at the end of it, he talks about true religion. What true religion looks like. Taking care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. And then he says, and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Boy, this book is just packed full of faith kind of things. If we're going to walk in the faith, these are things that James says you need to put into your life. You need to know these things and then let them live in you. Let them walk in you. Chapter 2, he talks about favoritism. Don't do that. Don't show favoritism toward somebody who walks into your assembly and he might have money versus somebody who walks into your church family and he's poor and you treat one better. Don't do that. You're walking down the street, don't say hi to people that are wealthy and well to do and and, and and avoid and and scorn at people who don't seem to look the same way. James says, Don't do that in your heart. Don't do that in reality. That's not how Jesus lived his life. That's not how Jesus wants you and I to live our lives. And he says, he says in chapter two, God. Uh, has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in the faith. Man, that's so, so true. I, you know, I've had I've had the opportunity to go to Haiti and, and go to Mexico uh, numerous times. And I got to tell you, those people, we look at them and go, wow, they're poor. They look at themselves and think how blessed they are. They have God in their life and they are more blessed. They are so happy. They you know, we think they need us, but really what needs to happen is we need them. We need their faith. We need their, like, steadfastness. We need their, their uh, toughness. We need their outlook. We need their joy. Because for the most part, they're pretty happy people. They don't realize I mean, they see what happens in America and they know that we're a land of uh, milk and honey. You know, we got everything we want. And you got everything you need here. That's why people right now are flooding into our borders because they know in America, there's all kinds of wealth. There's all kinds of materialism. There's everything. But those people in Haiti and those people down in Mexico that have no desire to come to this country, those people are doing just fine. And God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in the kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. And then James 2, he talks about the royal law. Do you know what the royal law is? The royal law, you could probably guess, is that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And we would just love our neighbor the way we love ourselves. We would just treat people the way we want to be treated and the way that we would treat ourselves. And so James, this book of James in his letter is about living out our faith in very real life ways. That's what the entire book is about. And some would say that James is so overly heavy on deeds. Like James is all about deeds and not enough on grace. Right, those two things, faith and Uh, grace and deeds, right? Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by works? What What are we saved by? James is heavy on deeds. Paul, in his letters, is very heavy on justification in God. Paul is very heavy on the grace of God. James, here's what James is heavy on. He's heavy on works that exemplify that we are justified by God. James is like, we are saved by grace. Yes, that's true. But show me your faith by what you do. That's huge. It's not enough to walk around and say, yippee, I am saved by grace and do nothing for the the kingdom of God and do nothing for the down and the, the, the hurting and the poor and the lost and the crippled and the blind and the naked. To just say I'm saved by grace and walk by those people and do nothing is not faith in Jesus at all. Paul wants to highlight the fact that we can do nothing really to earn grace. It's a gift of God, and that is so true. But once you have that gift of grace, and you have received that mercy from God, it ought to propel us out into the world to do something gigantic for God. Not because we earn salvation in it, but because we're so blessed and so grateful. We want everyone else to experience the Lord in their life. And so James is big on doing it. Showing us, showing the world that you're saved by your actions. It's a a wonderful book. It's an amazing book. It's the kind of letter that all of us need to pay attention to and put into practice. And so we come to chapter 2. Uh, verse 12, and, and James is going to say this. He's going to say this. Look, uh, speak and act the end of, uh in chapter two, it's the end of a section. We're going to get into the next section here in a minute. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Again, I don't want to rush through this. I don't want to just read this and move on and, okay, got it. Go on, check. I don't want to do that. Everything James is gonna to say to us in this section of his of, of his letter is so important to us walking by faith. That I just I want to digest it for myself. I want to just think about it. I want it to soak into my head and into my heart and really figure out what is James saying to us and how does this apply to me right now, today, as I as I go out into the world and rub shoulders with people. And have coffee and, and, and coach kids and, and work with our youth group and and, and shepherd a flock. How, how, do I, how do I live out the word of God? And what James is saying to us today. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment, because judgment Without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then he says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, we're not even into the passage that we're going to dig into today and next week, but this is powerful. This is powerful. Prepare to appear. Remember, that's what we said at the end of the message last week, right? Prepare to appear, that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We live with the awareness that we are going to stand at the end of this world, at the end of our road. When we leave this place, we are going to stand toe-to-toe with God. We are going to have to give an account of the life that we lived. And that's kind of what James is saying here to you and me today. Prepare to appear. You're going to appear before God. He says, speak and act. Here's how you should live your life. Speak and act as if you're going to be judged because because judgment awaits all of us. The judgment seat of Christ is, is out in front of every person on the planet. We are going to stand before God. But I love what James says here to us. And he does speak of grace because look what he says here. He says, hey, Christian, you, hey, you, Christian, you claim to be a Christian. You say you're a follower of Jesus and live your life as if you will be judged strictly by the details of the law. Every jot and every tittle, you are going to be judged by the law. Live your life, speak and act as if you know that you are going to be judged strictly by the law of God. But then he says, but then he says, these words right here, mercy triumphs. Over judgment. See, that's grace. That's grace. See, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's judgment, and then there's mercy and grace. And when you're a follower of Jesus, if you if you have come to know mercy, if you are living your life in mercy, the mercy of God. You understand that he has been merciful with you, a sinner who does not deserve his grace or his love or his promises or heaven or eternal life in any way. I do not deserve any of it. And when we live in that mercy of what he has done for us and we show that mercy to the world around us by the way we live our lives, then mercy will triumph over judgment on the day of judgment for you. This is so powerful. I mean, this is so good. If you don't live in mercy, if you don't understand the mercy and have accepted the mercy of God for your life, and you aren't living in mercy for the people around you, then all that's left for you is judgment. Mercy is not going to triumph over judgment for you. Only if you have his mercy and you're living in his mercy will it triumph. You're going to be shown mercy if you're living in mercy. If you're living out mercy, if you're honoring God and obeying God and living according to his will and his way and his truths, you will experience mercy in the end and mercy in your life will triumph over judgment. faith. When we live and walk by faith, these are the things that we we live in and we can claim, right? When you're walking in the faith of Jesus, you're walking your life by faith, honoring God, obeying God, then then the promises of God are yours. And mercy triumphing over judgment is a promise for you who lives in the mercy of God. That's powerful. That is powerful. James comes to, to verse 14. Comes us to verse 14. And this is where we're, we're gonna camp out a little bit today, not much longer, but then we're gonna camp out again next week. And we're gonna really dig in here because James is going to show us what it means to walk by faith in these verses. I mean, his whole letter is about living a life of faith in Jesus. But in this section, I want to really focus on some things that James is going to say. Today, we're just going to break into the passage and we're going to touch on a few things. But then we're going to come back next week and dig. So here you go. Verse 14, James chapter 2. I hope you have your Bibles open. If you're not, just pause this thing. You know, just wherever the pause button is. Just put me on pause. Get your Bible, open it up, James chapter two, and, and get ready to circle and highlight and write all over this scripture just things that God is gonna speak to your heart. Okay, do it. Look, when, when Jesus returns and this world is burned up, whatever however God decides to wipe it out, the, the, the pages of the Bible that were written on paper from a tree, are not going with us to heaven. That's going to stay here. The written word of God, the paper that we have in our scriptures, this is not coming with us. And and what matters most is what it says, not the pages that it's written on. So highlight, write, circle, write in the margins. Just mark up that word, mark up that Bible so that you'll have you'll have something to come back to and remember and and, and help you to remind you of what God says in this section of Scripture, in James chapter 2. But look what he says. What good is it, my brother? Or what good is it, my brother and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes, daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say you have faith, was not even Rahab, the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That's uh that's 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 some truth right there, you guys. That is some amazing truth truth for the Christian walk. We want to live by faith. We want to walk by faith. James is going to tell us some things in this section that are going to blow our minds and help us to understand what it, exactly it means to walk by faith. And I just want to touch on it. I just want to begin to crack it open because like I said, we're going to dwell on these verses for the for next week and this week, okay? So there's 13 verses here. James is going to pose in these verses six questions. He's going to give us seven factual statements. And he's going to use some sarcasm along the way. In verse 15 and 16, he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, and does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? That's sarcasm. That's like uselessness. That's like that's not faith at all. Don't don't even say you have faith if you're not gonna respond to the needs of people. Don't even claim to have faith in Jesus. That's sarcasm that he uses in that. He calls someone a fool. I don't know. Verse 20 says, you foolish person. I suppose he's talking about whoever does kind of what he's saying in, in, in what we just, the example he just gave, right? Right, that you 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 tell somebody, hey, uh, God bless, have a great day, hope your uh, life is wonderful, and you do nothing to help them out. That's foolish living. That's not godliness. And he calls somebody a fool to claim to have faith, but you don't help the hurting. That's not faith in Jesus whatsoever. Eleven times in thirteen verses, he's going to use the word faith. It's a big word. And then James uses several what I call setup words. Like, there's several setup words that he's going to use in this section that are going to set up a truth that we need to kind of suck on and glean from and and dig into a little bit. I don't know why I said suck on. That's kind of weird. Right there, I don't know where that came from. But when I'm studying a, a passage of scripture like this one, like we are today, I look for words that are like truth words. They're set up truth words. Like, like when Jesus said in in our sermon series, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, that's a set up phrase, right? That he's about to say something really important. and, And he sets it up with saying, hey, pay attention to this. And so there's some setup words here, and there's five of them that I want to point out to you. And then uh, we're going to just let this stew for the rest of the week, and we're going to come back next week and dig, dig, dig some more. The first setup word that James is going to use in this section is verse 14. He uses the word claims. Claims. Someone claims to have faith. Now, we all know what claims mean. It means to, like, say something about yourself. Like I am this or I'm that. Like we hear people claim things all the time. I hear it all the time, man. I'm a, I've been playing ball for seven years of my life. I'm a, the best shortstop uh, this team will ever have. And then you watch them play and it's like, shh, don't, don't, don't say that. Don't ever say that again because your, your actions are not backing up your claim, right? So people claim all kinds of things. I'm the best singer. I'm the best, you know, whatever people claim things. And then you watch them do it, and you're like, no, you're not. No, you don't. It's okay, but it's not as big as you made it out to Claiming. You know, people claim things, right? We claim things. It means to say, in this context, that you're a Christian. James is saying, you claim that you're a believer. You claim that you're a follower. You claim that you're a Christian. But there is no action backing up your claim. Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God. Jesus claimed that he was one with the Father. But Jesus, the difference between Jesus and most people is he backed it up. He proved it. Signs and wonders and miracles. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He, he not only said that he was the Son of God, but he gave evidence and proved that he was. He made claims, big ones. But he gave proof that he was. I've been growing a lot of tomato plants lately. I got a bunch of them. If you need one, but but like I grow them under a roof until they sprout up, you know, maybe about that big, and then I'll transplant them into. Um, I have a one big row of tomatoes. So I there's one spot that I transplanted a plant, and and if that plant doesn't take, and it just kind of withers over, I'm sorry, plant. <laughs> but you're gonna get plucked out of there. You are useless, plucked out, tossed into the grass, gonna be cut up for mulch later. And I'm gonna take another tomato plant and I'm gonna put it in there and I'm gonna water it and take care of it and hope it it takes root. Because tomato plants have one purpose and that is to produce tomatoes. And if you're not gonna produce tomatoes, you gotta go. Don't, Don't claim to be a tomato plant If you're not going to produce tomatoes. James uses the word claims. Someone claims to have faith. Oh, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian all these years. I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized into Christ. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Where's the evidence? Wow, that's a powerful word. And that's a setup word for James in this section. We're going to dig more into that next week. The next word that James is going to share, another setup word, is the word suppose. He says the word suppose. If you're looking at your Bible, I hope you are, you'll see where he says that in verse 15. Suppose, suppose someone is without clothes. Now, can you imagine that? Walking down the street, walking through the city, and suppose you might just see somebody who is in need, or a beggar, or looking for money, or has very little on. Like, those people are all over the place. This this isn't even a suppose. This is reality. And I'm sure in Jerusalem or wherever uh, James is writing, there's probably people all over the city that are poor and begging. And so there's not, it's not a far fetch at all to suppose. But James says, like, suppose, suppose someone is without clothes. And you walk up to them and say, oh, how are you? God bless you. Jesus loves you. And then you walk away and you do nothing about their condition or their nakedness or their need. How then can you say the love of Christ is in your heart? Suppose it's a, it's a, it's a set up word. Another set up word. Third one is this. Believe. This is a big word believe he says you believe you believe that that there is one god you believe that there is one god awesome good but guess what the devil believes that too so now what like really you're no different than the devil he believes and you believe whippy See, believe is critically important to faith. In fact, faith and belief are Siamese twins. They're so closely related that there's hardly any separation between them. Faith is belief, and belief is faith. And this is a big topic in this section with James and in his entire book. You can't speak of faith and not be talking about belief and vice versa. But someone might say, in a worldly perspective, belief is kind of a mental ascent. It's like a, a mental decision. It's intellectual. You believe in something. And faith is more spiritual and religious in its nature. And in a worldly sense, this is true. It's, it is true. It's true. Can't deny this, right? For, for example, if I said to you, Do you believe that George Washington lived? We'd all go, yeah, of course. It's in the history books. We all believe that George Washington lived. If I were to then say to you, how many of you have faith that George Washington is going to lead America back into a godly nation who worships and honors God? How many of you have faith in George Washington? Nobody. Nobody because he's dead, right? We can't do it. We believe in George, but we have zero faith in George in doing anything for us right now, right? Zero. We have mental understanding that he lived and existed, we believe, but we have no faith in him. And so in a worldly sense, the two are separated, but biblical faith and belief are no different from each other. Both faith and belief require, they both require this. One, intellectual comprehension and understanding. We need to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We need to know God, right? We need to know God. And, and we also need to have belief in the spiritual truths and the work of God, in the work of Christ in our life, and the hope that is to come. And so we have belief and faith. They are so tightly united. And this is James's entire appeal in his letter. That faith in God or belief in God are the same thing and require action as evidence that you truly do believe or have faith. Actions that support your belief slash faith. James, if you were here to, today, he would say to you, Do you believe in God? And you would say, Yes, I believe in God. He would say, Good. Where's the evidence that you believe? Where is the evidence in your life that you believe? And then he would say to you, Do you have faith in God? And you would say, Yes, I have faith in God. He would say, Good. Where is the evidence? Of your faith biblical belief and faith is wholehearted trust and commitment in God believe the fourth word that James is going to use as a setup word is the word foolish we touched on he said you foolish person you want proof that faith without deeds is useless foolish foolish we're not supposed to call people foolish. But there are some things that are foolish. And James is saying, look, if you say you believe in Jesus, you're followers of Jesus, you are a disciple of Christ, but you have no action to back it up. You are fooling yourself. You are lying to yourself. You are not kidding anyone. And you are certainly not going to kid God. And you, in the end, are, are going to be foolish. Your foolishness is going to find you. Do not say that you are a follower of Christ if you are not backing it up with actions, with behavior, with a lifestyle that honors God and actions that is on the mission of Christ out to reach the world to help those in need, to go into all the world and make disciples, to baptize, to teach, knowing that God is with you. The foolishness, tricks itself into thinking, I'm a believer, but I don't have to do anything. Foolish. It's foolish. And the last word that James is going to use is the word complete. He says in verse 22, in regards to Abraham, his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he believed in God? No. But because his deeds supported it, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, his faith and his deeds were working together, and that made it complete. Faith by itself, without deeds, is useless. It's only half the puzzle. Action tells everyone and tells God that your faith is alive and well, and that's what makes Faith complete. It's that we're doers of the word and not hearers of it only. When we marry, when we marry faith and deeds, what we have then is complete Christianity. What we have is complete faith. And anything less than that. Don't say you believe and have no deeds. And don't do deeds and not give the honor and the glory to God. Both must be working together. That's called complete Christianity. That is called complete faith. That is complete walking by faith. See, last week Paul said, walk by faith and not by sight. And this week James says to us, faith without actions is dead. It's not faith at all. We are not walking by faith if there are no actions to support our faith. If we're not doing anything to reach the lost, if we're not doing anything to reach the down and out, if we're not doing anything to reach those in need that are hurting the down and outers of this world that Jesus came to rescue. If we are not doing what Jesus would be doing, our faith is empty and our claims are foolish. And so the question is simply this, as we wrap this up, what are we doing for the kingdom of God? Where is the evidence of your faith? I I hope and pray that each one of us will just stew on this this week. That we will really chew on this thought faith and deeds. Are they working together in my life? Do I just say I believe, but there's no action behind it? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? I'll see you guys next week, and we're gonna dig back into this passage, these verses again, and we're gonna hit them from a different angle, what James is saying to us. But this is how we're gonna be able to digest what it means to do this, what it means in our life to to put into practice a, a life that is walking by faith in Jesus every day, not kidding ourselves, not making false claims, and not being fools for saying we're doing something that we're not doing, but truly honoring God with our life. I'll see you guys next week. God bless you.